Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined again by my friend Pete Spiliakos to talk about the first two Blade movies. Hello Pete, I'm so glad you joined me on this. How are you doing? Pretty good Titus, how's everything? Oh, fine over here. I started thinking this is the time, although we had talked before about Marxian class analysis in the original Blade, because now black heroes are in the news. The new Black Panther movie is getting rave reviews before the audience actually gets to see it, and by all accounts it seems like it's going to be an okay movie, but not great. What I'm worried about is that the press is neglecting just how American the story of Black Panther is as it's told now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This started with Captain America Civil War where the hero Black Panther is introduced because his father is murdered. That makes it obvious and nevertheless everybody is blind to it. The Black Panther movie itself is about what happens to black pride and to the civil rights struggle after the assassination of MLK entirely an American story and somehow people aren't paying attention to this because they want it to be more about woke progress. Then Salon's bragging about the first black blockbuster, effectively whitewashing Wesley Snipes, Will Smith and all these guys out of history to say nothing of Shaft. (laughs) Tell me, have you been paying attention to the news? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think the Salon story was, it has the revenue model of saying stupid things so that people would say, hey, look at this stupid thing, and they would share that stupid thing. And I think on some level, somebody was thinking, hey, you know what, this isn't right. And they're like, hey, that's okay. It's okay that it's not right. Not right is our model. That's Newsweek's model. Write something stupid and have people complain about it. It's easier to write something stupid than to write something smart. And that's what they did. And to be fair, even though the article itself was bad, it produced good responses, like Sonny Bunch, where he basically says, hey, listen, I mean, not only is Blade a black superhero movie, it's the beginning of a modern superhero movie glut. It is pioneering. Superhero movies were largely dead after Batman and Robin. And Blade basically said, oh, you you know what? It's an unknown character. You can tell these really great stories and people will come to see it. And people didn't stop watching superhero movies because they didn't like superhero movies. They didn't like watching bad superhero movies. And Blade is extremely influential as being a forerunner and an inspiration to both the DC and the Marvel movies that we see today. Blade is also one of the great left-wing political movies in the fantasy genre of the last 20 or 30 years. And I also want to talk about David Goyer, who was the writer on it. I think David Goyer really doesn't get the appreciation that he deserves as a writer. He has worked within the fantasy genre in a lot of different intellectual traditions, and he's produced some really good work. Start with Dark City. It's a story about, do we have souls? Are we the products of social forces in the same way that the buildings that are constantly changing the products of social forces, or are the buildings themselves and our own lives somehow a reflection of our own souls? And I think that was a really good version of that story. Now, when he partnered with the Nolans, when the DC movies, you see themes like justice as defined by Socrates. You also have the relationship of the individual to the community, which is a central question of Plato's Republic. You have Batman trilogy, you have Aristotle and regime cycles. Then again, you also have the Orestias issues of what is the rule of law? What is the rule of personal justice? How does one transition from the rule of law to personal justice? So he's basically worked within the Greek dramatic tradition. He's worked within the 20th century existentialist tradition. And with Blade, he works within the Marxian tradition, where basically he looks at the political and social forces of late 20th century America and says, you know, a lot of the internet billionaires that we are worshiping, there's actually something really dangerous there. We should not idealize these people. There's something potentially really exploitative there. 
I recognize the left-wing movies right away, even though I was relatively young. But it's relatively recently that I've seen the um, similarities between Blade and the Roddy Piper movie from about 10 years earlier called They Live, where the protagonist learns that, oh my God, this America of opportunity that I see is actually being ruled by these aliens. And Blade takes the same idea. Instead of America being ruled and exploited by aliens, they're vampires. But it's the same basic principle. Only Blade says instead of them being traditional 1980s-style Gordon Gecko businessmen, it's actually a conflict between Blue Bloods, a hereditary aristocracy, and a meritocratic half-vampire or made-vampire class who represents an early version of the internet billionaires who are trying to transform American society from the more staid and cautious versions of oppression that the traditional pure-blood vampires have. Yes, David Desgoyer has an uncanny ability to dramatize ways of thinking that are very, very different. Dark City, the Alex Proyas movie from 1998, which is now a cult classic, as we say, but was not a success on release, has Rufus Sewell as the protagonist try to account for what it means to live on the outer edges. He's all of a sudden left without community, all the habits, all the repetition, all the security of the world in which we live. And as you put it, he has to figure out whether he really has a soul, whether there are things that he will not do when played with by a cruel fate. That's something we find easy to dramatize. On the other hand, you have Blade, who is about black pride. Wesley Snipes got into this project for Blade because he was in talks to be Black Panther. And one thing led to another, projects changed and he eventually became Blade. Seen from Blade's perspective, from the underclass, from the underworld, from below, wealth in America is massively unjust and tyrannic. You see this Marxist view of America, as you put it, there are two types of exploiters. An older, more wasp class, more hereditary than meritocratic, more oligarchic than tyrannic. But on the other hand, you have these new half-breeds, half-vampire, half-human, like Blade himself, but on the opposite end of the social scale. The antagonist in Blade, played by Stephen Dorff, called Deacon Frost, he is, as you put it to me, a Silicon Valley billionaire. He's a meritocrat, he's super intelligent, he uses computers to decrypt stuff, to get knowledge that he can use to get power, and he even has the casual open front shirt look and party attitudes from before the dot-com bubble. It is an uncanny and prescient view of the worry and even fear that this new class of billionaire meritocrats could excite in people. I think it's exactly right. And I think that, if anything, Blade didn't go far enough. Whereas what Frost wears, is he wears a silk shirt without a tie and he has the top button unbuttoned. Whereas now it's the hoodie. In other words, he understood that this new class was more informal and it was trying to be more democratic in manners but was actually far more hierarchical in reality than even the old structures being a millionaire in the 1970s got you much less power than being an internet billionaire in 2017 or, or 2018 along multiple axes and that's why the first scene is so great where you have an individual who's the guy off the street 
And he thinks he's entering a world of democratic equality in the form of the rave, a world where the rules don't apply, but it's actually going to be okay. But he's actually entered into a much more hierarchical, much more brutal world than he'd ever imagined. You have this illusion of this benign post-hierarchical world where you actually have something that has all the trappings of casual life and everyday equality, but is actually a a completely brutal doggy-dog world. And I actually think that you're right when you talk about Blade as a black superhero. I think Wesley Snipes was definitely interested in Blade as a superhero who was African-American, but I also think Blade is one of the great class over race left-wing movies. Blade is perfectly proud to be black. He gets his supplies from an Afrocentric store of the kind that were common in the 1990s in any place that was a black neighborhood or was adjacent to. You could find a store with Nubian somewhere in its title. Exactly the kind of store that he visits, but his partner is Whistler. On the one hand, they could not be more opposite. Blade is black and he's urban. Whistler is rural, he's white, and he's country. But they're allies. While their cultural differences are real, and neither one of them hides their cultural differences, Whistler does not pretend to be anything but country western rural guy. Blade does not pretend to be anything but an urban black guy. But they understand that the main axis of conflict is class, not race. It's class, not geography. So they are effectively allies. And I also think to a large extent that that explains the Bernie Sanders appeal both to rural whites and to young non-whites. I was looking up some of the uh, polls yesterday. Bernie Sanders did far better among young African-Americans than he did among older African-Americans. He did far better among young Latinos than he did among, among older Latinos. It spoke to the possibility that the concentration of wealth that became possible with the advent of the internet and also a class that felt itself to be more securely entitled because they're meritocrats rather than inheritors actually produced a potentially dangerous dynamic. And what I think is especially prescient is while I think if this Blade movie had been produced two years ago in the aftermath of the Great Recession, people said, you know what, it's kind of on the nose. It's just saying what people already think. But it was saying this in 1998, at a time when people honestly believed that the internet was going to make us all rich somehow. We're all going to be millionaires clipping coupons from pets.com. And what he's saying is, you know, you think it's going to be a world where they're billionaires and you're millionaires, but it's actually going to have new forms of hierarchy and even bigger imbalances of power than the one you know. So you might want to watch out. It was actually really smart about where the political economy was going and where our political cleavages were going. Yes, and we should outline that this is a massive distinction between Marxist left or a vaguely Marxist-inspired liberalism and, on the other hand, woke progress. And it's a class distinction. Blade was the last of the lower class heroes, whereas all our heroes nowadays are upper class. Now our heroes are Tony Stark and people like that who are the meritocratic billionaires. This is the massive transformation that has occurred. Whereas David Goyer, he could dramatize so well the class conflicts in America. What you could call today, as you say, the Bernie Sanders alliance is because the same coalition was the Clinton coalition. And he was saying they betrayed us. We believe that this guy from Arkansas, who's also going to be our first black president, as liberals said at the time about Bill Clinton, he was going to do what Democrats are supposed to do, to take care of the lower classes. But no, instead you're going to be betrayed. And you're right that Goyer has this great tragic insight that the rave, the egalitarian orgy of desire of the 90s, 
in fact turns out to be a capitalist orgy of consumption. You go from enthusiasm to hysteria directly in these two images, just like in the world of Blade, there is the underclass, there is the overclass, and you just get glimpses here and there of their relationship to the city, to America, which is the great in-between. In Goyer stories, you get this chance through mythology to show this massive conflict between the low and the high, and to show that it somehow endangers the middle. And in Blade, it's embodied by the doctor, who's a professional. She's the one person in the movie who does not understand what's going on. She allows yeah. us to hear from the people who are in the know what's really happening. Yeah, she hears from Blade and from Whistler from one end of the class conflict, and she hears from Frost through the other end of the class conflict, and she has to pick a side. Yes. Ultimately. It's not necessarily a theme of Marx, but it's a theme of the people who are influenced by Marx. And do I think that Goyer is a Marxist? Not necessarily, in the same way that I'm not sure that the Nolans are conservatives. I don't necessarily buy it. But it's somebody who was able to profit from his reading and apply those lenses to a particular story. And I think he really did a good job of telling a left-wing Marxist-influenced story. And once again, I think that They Live is very similar, whereas They Live is a more conventional left-wing story. I think Blade is shrewd about how economic power changes over time within the wealthy. Yes, in Blade you get a more complex generational change and economic change you're aware that there's a future threat to America. What's happening with globalization, with post-Cold War America, where, as you put it, we were all supposed to end up rich and successful and comfortable and never worry about economic crisis after economic crisis, long recessions, massive political shifts out of popular fear. This was never supposed to happen. We were all supposed to go into the sunlit uplands of history. And so the shock is all the more powerful for how unexpected the return of politics and with it, of course, of class conflict is. And just like the presence of the black doctor, the woman that Blade and Whistler save, shows you where the middle class audience is and how they're supposed to think about it, as you put it, the alliance between Blade, the black hero, and Whistler, the white country Chris Christopherson, shows a possible class solidarity among Americans that can not only transcend race, but assert American dignity. Because these people come from the lower classes, equality is an achievement for them. Standing up for themselves, seeing the injustice of the system and trying to make it right, is a form of achieving their own dignity and implicitly defending that dignity for everybody else who might be taking it for granted. These class structures and where they place characters orient the plot and force you to come to certain realizations and make your decisions in accordance with that. This leads to the revelation in the plot. As you put it, there's a conflict between the blue blood, the aristocratic inheritors, the people who don't really want more. They are afraid of America because they know that whenever you have a lot, you have a lot to lose. And then this new generation of meritocrats who think, no, no, you can co-opt America. You can persuade people in certain ways. You can sell them on things they don't even understand. If you put the right clothing on the wolf, the sheep will vote for him. That's the attitude of the antagonist. He says, I learn my principles from you. You exploit, you live off of inequality. I'm just taking this to the next logical step. We shouldn't be exploiting people with fear or undercover, with legitimacy and discretion in a limited way. We should be exploiting everybody all the time. 
everything is going to be transformed by this new thing that you could call globalized capitalism. The other vampires are afraid of him, they're all local and ethnic and specific. This is just an all-purpose white guy who has no particular allegiance or no particular background. He's not just a techy, casual drugs and partying sort of guy. He's not just a penthouse-owning luxury man. He's also the vampire who wants to get into all kinds of deals with people, who's going out in the open, who is expanding business all the time and therefore attracting more attention, because he knows that's the future, it's globalization. And he thinks he could profit from it by liberating the principle of exploitation. You're a capitalist, you're a bloodsucker, literally. That's the lefty part of the story. By liberating that principle from any prudential restraints, from any of the limits of habit or lack of imagination that previous generations of wealthy exploiters had. And this again, like the black hero Blade, brings up the old American quarrels about equality. The antagonist in Blade is literally saying what you hear Abraham Lincoln say about slavery. It is the old serpent in the Garden of Eden whispering, You work, I'll eat. That is the beginning of tyranny and the principle of injustice. And Blade as a story is a revolt against that in favor of a dignified American equality. What makes Frost so interesting is, you know, I've been thinking about the David Brooks column for over a couple of weeks. The first one basically talking about people who feel like losers. And if they're losers, it's their fault. If they have a problem in America, it's their problem. And he said the key is to make everyone a change maker. You need to teach everyone that their situation isn't what it needs to be, that they'll invent a new app that'll make everything better. And I think David Brooks would really appreciate Deacon Frost. He wasn't born rich. He wasn't born into the vampire class. He was a regular human being who seized the opportunity of becoming a vampire to hustle, to create something new, to be a dynamist, to appreciate raves. Deacon Frost is the ideal David Brooks changemaker. He's going to start from nothing and he's going to become everything. And if you don't become like Deacon Frost, if you're somebody who's bitten by Deacon Frost, well, I mean, you're a loser. That's kind of what you deserve. Yes, that's the ugliest part of the story. And it is true that nowadays, unlike in the hysterical Blade movie, you just see respected columnists left and right say this proudly, openly in the pages of the New York Times. Are you an open-minded, open-to-change disruptor profiting from the system? Great. Are you not? Then you're not even human. This is the shocking thing. We don't really have in our culture movies that could give you a view of the class situation, of the dangers that our economic arrangements present to our sense of solidarity and to our political institutions. But Blade did a very good job of putting all this on show and it deserves to have more influence and to have people pay more attention to it than just an entertaining vampire slaying movie with all the violence and what have you. And it's... also that a lot of these social changes, a lot of these social relations that Blade is dramatizing didn't exist in that way at that time. I mean, the late 1990s, for all its glorification of internet millionaires, had a much more democratic understanding of how economic growth would impact people. In other words, there was a genuine belief that a rising tide will lift all boats, whereas now there's an understanding that if the tide rises, some people are just going to need to like fade away into their heroin and be replaced by other people. I mean, you see this, they're not going to be able to do these jobs. We don't necessarily want them to do these jobs. These people are losers. You don't want to hire them. They'll just screw everything up and they'll steal your silverware. That is basically its understanding of people who fall behind. David Brooks says, okay, we need to make people change makers is the unspoken, and but we know that's not going to happen. And, well, we have to agree not to worry about the people who won't become change makers. 
Brooks is saying we need to make them change makers. What he's saying is screw people who don't become change makers. And that's that's a subsidiary theme. But when he's talking about in the context of Blade, he's talking about Blade. He's talking about Whistler. But the thing is, Brooks is also talking about Flint. And yep. superficially, he means West Virginia, because if you're a New York Times columnist, it's for some reason okay to think that anything that's going bad in West Virginia is their own fault. But he's really talking about Flint, too. And there's pitiless and also speaking from a position of comfort. But there's a glimmer of reality to the bitter contempt of the upper class that you see in Blade that has embedded itself across the political culture in, a, in American politics, both on the left and on the right. The left-wing version of that is, well, they're deplorables. These people are racist, sexist. We're not even going to worry about them. They're, in practice, subhuman. That's Brooks is the center-right version of that, and Hillary Clinton is the center-left version of that. Once again, tying the conflicts of Blade into American politics, I suspect that is one of the reasons why I saw very, very little enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton outside of some corners of the white upper middle class. Now, there are a few corners of the white upper middle class where people are genuinely excited by her. They were, generally speaking, older, professional, baby boomer white women. On one level, she was a substitute. They don't think they got as far as they could have because they made certain compromises that they don't think they should have had to be made. And Hillary Clinton has become like a totem for them. She succeeds, they succeed. But among younger people who are probably going to enter the wage earners spectrum, they hated Donald Trump, many of them. Hated him like poison. But they had very little enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. They voted for her as a lesser evil, emphasis on both lesser and evil. And I think what they saw was that when Bernie Sanders talked about breaking up the banks, she talked about, well, we'll regulate the banks in some way that's not understood while at the same time taking their huge campaign contributions and their huge honoraria. But we'll give you something, too. I mean, the thing is, she was making sectoral deals. I'll deal. I'll give you something. I'll give them something. But there was also an understanding that what you can give her isn't ultimately going to be as valuable as what other people can give her. And you might get something, whereas Donald Trump is the devil. You don't want Donald Trump. There was also an understanding that she would sell you out, just like she would sell out those deplorables that voted for her husband in the 1990s. I mean, the thing is, those people that she is condemning now, she was glad to take their votes when she thought she needed them. What is she going to do when she doesn't need you anymore? Whereas Sanders felt like a principled class warrior. The reason Hillary Clinton wanted to raise the minimum wage to 12.5 was because, well, she needed to do it to win an election. The reason Bernie Sanders wanted to raise it to 15 was because he thought that was justice. You can be enthusiastic about one, whereas the other, you can make a deal with them, but at the same time with the understanding that this deal is subject to change relative to their interests. Yep, that's perhaps the primary reason why Blade, which understood as a class struggle story would otherwise seem hysterical, nevertheless is way more plausible now. To make deals with the Clintons, you'd have to trust them, and nobody trusts them anymore. Nobody trusts any of these people who, under whatever guise, want to sell you the same basic notions that if you're worried about how things are working out in America, you're the problem. You will be solved, and it doesn't matter if you won't like it. You don't get a chance, you don't get a choice, you're over, you're the past. The future will be unleashed, and in the future you'll be irrelevant. You will be replaced, transformed, however it's going to happen, it is going to happen. And that's the sort of thing that you see Blade fighting against. The only time he has a real conversation with his antagonist, this is again dramatized in the most basic and most obvious way, so that nobody misses it. 
there's this black hero on one side of the street on the other side there's this white antagonist who's the globalization capitalist anti-hero and who's holding a small girl hostage that's the future they're fighting over and he's openly willing to sacrifice that if it's going to come to a struggle doesn't matter sacrifice whoever you need to sacrifice but on the other hand the hero is supposed to show solidarity even if the girl is i think some asian girl there's the non-white non-black future of america represented there that's the story they're trying to tell you and it works because in america a black hero is going to stand up for the america's principle of justice some form of equality that makes people respectable to each other it doesn't necessarily matter how rich you are because Americans aren't born Marxists. But it certainly matters whether some classes look down their noses at others. It certainly matters whether some classes create such resentment and hatred and desperation in other classes that the country is torn apart. And so that's what the narrative comes to. You have got to understand racial injustice in terms of a claim to dignity as an equal citizen and use that to make a class statement about how everybody should have middle class respectability afforded them. And also, not for nothing, that Whistler and Blade are both marginal in different ways. They're both people who have no place in the boardroom, and they're both people who have no particular place in the rave. And they're also the only two people in the movie who genuinely care for each other. They're the only people who have a real relationship because on the one hand, there is a form of identity politics as interest group politics. You get this, you get that. Black Lives Matter gets this, DACA gets that. And there's also a form of solidarity politics where we're both being hurt by the same things and we can both be helped by the same things. And our differences matter. You can listen to your music, I'll listen to my music. But at the end of the day, we have a common agenda. In the real world, these things don't work out perfectly. I mean, Bernie Sanders had to play both kinds of politics, but one kind predominated. They were in this together, predominated. Whereas with Hillary Clinton, it was the more interest group politics. You get something, you get something, they get something. But these somethings are different somethings. Because at the end of the day, it's about rewarding people as group members who are able to demand something of a political system rather than people who are different at the political level but are ultimately the same and ultimately have the same claims. Blade was pretty good about dramatizing that cultural differences at the political level could actually be a basis for real solidarity and a common agenda rather than simply coalitional bargaining, which is how Hillary Clinton seems to have understood it. Yeah, that was the original story all about facing the future threat to America. What if it turns out that if we create a tech-based meritocracy, we will destroy any possible principle of equality and will create rampant exploitation with an apparent full justification that we're productivity embodied on the successful side of the conflict and everybody else is just not productive and so they don't matter. Blade 2 is a very different story, although it is also written by David Goyer, with all the stuff already established, as you pointed out, it's incredibly different as a sequel. It has almost no connection in moral terms and in cinematic setting with the first movie. It repeats some of the scenes like a rave. It repeats a certain version of underworld, overworld conflict, but it is no longer a story about what's happening to human beings. The great majority, you could say the audience, they're not represented in the story anymore because this is fully committed to looking at the differences between different kinds of vampires or predators as opposed to prey. 
in a sense, as, as you pointed out, this is a radicalization of Marxism. If you split people into predators and prey, it's inevitable that the predators will get all the dramatic attention because prey don't do anything. And so if we focus too much on class conflict, you end up thinking that only the people in the overclass matter because only they are actors, only they are active. Everybody else just has to put up with whatever they're going to do. That changes the dramatic interest and it's not necessarily as American a story and it's not necessarily as compelling either. It's still a good story and an interesting story, but the truth is that without the first one, you couldn't really like the second. What's interesting about the difference between, say, Blade and Blade 2 and compared to Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, both Goyer stories in some sense, is that The Dark Knight builds on the themes of the first, whereas Blade 2 does not develop those themes. It goes in a different direction. But I'm also wondering if that's inherently a problem with these Marxian analysis class awakening stories. That these stories inherently have a three-act arc where someone is innocent, someone learns, someone joins the struggle. But once you join the struggle, what is there to do? Either you win or you lose, but it becomes a very conventional good versus evil story. Whereas with these Marxian class awakening stories, the drama is in the awakening. The drama is in joining the struggle. But the struggle itself is simplistic. Once you join it, it's as much black hat and white hat as any 1930s John Wayne Western. And I think The Matrix had a similar problem. It's another class awakening story where you think you're in a world of democracy and equality, you're actually in a world of hierarchy and exploitation, but where do you go from there? And The Matrix never figured out where you go from there because the logical endpoint is either you achieve equality and paradise or you don't. And if you're not going to do that, what exactly are you doing? And with Blade 2 and I think The Matrix 2, they had the problem of, okay, we need to introduce more interesting elements because we don't want the story to be Blade gets rid of the vampires and ends exploitation. We don't want the story to be that Neo wakes up all these people and now they have to figure out how to join in an egalitarian society in an underground world. So you end up focusing on these fissures within the upper class because these writers, whether it's the Wachowskis or Goyer, haven't figured out how to extend this story to the next part of the cycle. Whereas when they were writing The Dark Knight, there are templates within Greek drama about how you go from setting up these conflicts to extending them to resolving them. Whereas with Marxian analysis, I'm not sure that there's really a good template. And we've seen two very good left-wing movies fail in their sequels at extending themes because these themes are not really easily extended unless you want to tell a very simplistic good versus evil story after having had this dramatic reversal in the first movie. Yeah, it's like having a friend who might tell you a few shocking things about how the system is evil on the first talk, but for the rest of your life, do you want to hear that story again and again and again? It's a strange focus on evil and the strange fascination with evil that denies the premise of evil itself. The problem with the Marxian analysis is that it presumes the people, the masses, the majority of mankind must eventually win, and then we will all have peace. The lion will lay with the lamb. And of course, you either get there and there's no drama left by definition, or you don't get there and then you have to admit that evil is permanent, that there is no historical transformation that can transform human beings to vanquish evil so that we're all good in the end. And that's the difference between the two Blade movies. The first Blade movie is about history. It's about the transformation of capitalist society, potentially, unless we do something about it, into a full-blown exploitative tyranny that has no respect for anybody's humanity. 
human beings are no longer able to commit but also to suffer injustice to inflict harm but also to incur it they're no longer in this ambiguous position of are you predator are you prey all of this is supposed to get resolved in there's no predators at all left and everybody is supposed to end up peaceful and of course if you do that you end up with no drama but if you don't end up with no drama you must admit evil is permanent and this is how Blade switches from a story of history and Marx's transformation of mankind to a story of nature. In Blade 2, the story turns out to be by a series of strange revelations that you could use biotechnology to solve the problem that Marxism can't solve. You don't have to be stuck with being human. You don't have to be stuck with the fear, are you a wolf or are you a sheep? you could use technology to transform being human into something that's permanently successful. This shows up as a past ancient vampire evil personified, the principle of exploitation of old politics, willing to slaughter anybody to protect themselves. And this principle of family or blood or race doesn't turn into nationalism, which would be another form of history. It turns into biotechnology. You just experiment on genes up until you create something that's you and that's perfect. This will solve the Marxist problem. Basically, Blade 2 says to Blade 1, you're right, the problem is Marxist exploitation. The solution, however, is not Marxist ideology, it's not politics, it's not class struggle. The solution is technology. As Marx himself said, the machine is the agent of the revolution. In Blade 2, they go to that point. Technology will transform being even a vampire into a whole new kind of monster. Some of this is just uncanny. Marx is forced by his theory to ultimately want to destroy the distinction between men and women, because that biological distinction is the basis of the division of labor. It's about who is needy. So long as men and women are different, women get pregnant, have children, and therefore are needy and not able to provide for themselves. They are dependents. They cannot be fully free agents. So you have to destroy that difference ultimately to create the perfectly free, unalienated individual in the classless society. In Blade 2, you actually get the classless society. It just turns out that it's complete monsters that it is not human beings who have been pacified. It's not just throwing Prozac at children. It's not just enough socialization and ideological progress and woke journalism. You have to transform their genes. But then it turns out that this underworld that's supposed to be the classless society is a bunch of permanent predators who are no longer male or female. Why? Because for them, eating and reproduction turn out to be the same thing. Whenever they feed, they infect with their monstrosity everything else. And so everybody is permanently a predator without wanting it even. You are compelled by the imperative of survival. This seems to be the result of the biotechnological revolution of changing our nature to get to a system of justice. The system of justice turns out to be not that the lion will sleep with the lamb, it's that everybody will be a monster worse than any lion. That's the strange thing about this second Goyer story, because he focuses on what would these people look like if they really tried to transform, if they felt in the way of vampires this desperate need for life, that you take life to stay alive, if you live beyond your humanity. As human beings, we say there are certain things you cannot do. There are sacred limits. You do not violate human bodies. You do not destroy humanity. 
But what if you want life at all costs? What if you're not reconciled to the mortality of your body? What if you're not reconciled to vulnerability? That's what the vampires show us. David Goyer's vampires, as opposed to Coppola's, are not sexual fantasies. They're political class fantasies. They have the superpowers of modern science, but also the super weaknesses that we have because of it. We are so afraid of death. We can live to 80 or 90 or 100, but you have to always be worried. You have to live the last third of your life in hospitals. You have all these powers and all these new fears. That's who the vampires are. That's us. That's our modern, super technological, but still vulnerably mortal society. And how are you going to deal with it? Blade 1 and Blade 2 show different solutions because both of them are tied to Blade's own blood. In Blade 2, they want to get at his blood again for a different purpose. They want to do genetic testing and a genetic recreation of this aberration so that they too can be invulnerable. That seems to be the strange, uncanny achievement of Blade 2. Figuring out what would we do if we abandon the purposes of ideological history and instead take on the purpose of recreating our nature. Let's yeah, fix mortality by technology. But what's interesting is that in Blade 2, humanity largely disappears. In the first movie, the vampires exist as a stratum within this human world. Whereas in the second movie, it's all about vampires. And vampires become a metaphor for our own anxieties and our own worries about our own body. It's not about class conflict. The vampires themselves are ourselves and our own humanity. How do we deal with dying? Well, we deal with dying by these changes to ourselves that might make us immortal. Now, in the vampire sense, it might mean not being vulnerable to garlic or silver anymore. Among human beings, it would be not being vulnerable to aging anymore. Del Toro's, the director's movies, one of the themes is by changing the things that make us mortal or that make us weak, whether vampires or human, we get rid of the good in our humanity as well as the bad. And one of the things I never really found satisfying is I couldn't really identify with these vampires. I think it's pretty easy in the first movie to identify with Blade and with Whistler and with the doctor who gets caught up in it. Whereas in the second movie, you have these rich vampires. In the context of the movie, they're worried about how to not die in the sun so we can take over the world. Whereas in the first movie, they've kind of already taken over the world. That's the whole point. But in this movie, they're worried, these old vampires, how are we not going to die? I never really emotionally bought into them. And I'm not sure that the movie ever emotionally buys into them because a lot of the movie is spent trying to distract the audience with these visuals, with these action set pieces where, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we have vampire ninjas? Wouldn't it be cool if we have vampires swinging comically large warhammer? Wouldn't it be cool if you have vampires who were bikers? These are nice visuals. I like them. I enjoy them. But afterwards, it feels like, wait a minute, I wasn't as emotionally engaged. It didn't get me as much as the first movie because it amounts to a bunch of kids sitting around talking, wouldn't it be cool if, oh my God, what if there were ninja costumes and there's like, they're going across the ceiling, but you can't hear them because they're vampires, but they're also ninjas. So they got ninja swords too. And it's like, yeah, but why are they doing this again? And I think the visual that works the best is the Nosferatu super vampire that they developed. It's not just because we have this cultural memory of what a vampire is like, which goes back to the 1930s, but because these vampires are both male and female. Their mouths are designed by Del Toro, who's a visually inventive director, to simultaneously evoke both male and female genitalia. Yes. And this also makes everything homogenous. They're in practice immortal, but they're also hyper-predators. They're social, but not in the human sense of being social, but in the hive mind sense of being social somehow. And that, I think, is somehow powerful. 
in the quest for fixing what is wrong with human, we lose everything when it comes to being human. We lose our individuality. We lose our physical distinctiveness. To the extent we can achieve immortality and equality, it actually takes away. I mean, Peter Lawler famously said, the bad in human life is what gives the good meaning. Whereas they lose what they think is bad, their distinctive vampire weaknesses. They also lose everything that makes their lives meaningful. Yeah. You're right about Del Toro. I think this guy's a bad director, but he is good at picking up visual things and noticing that people are interested in them. This guy's not a movie director. He's an illusionist. He's what liberal kids who are now journalists once thought a director was, like a cheap version of Spielberg. And now he's being so nominated and rewarded because they never grew up and never did he. And so they still are fascinated, although he has gotten worse over the years, not better. But you're right that he plays with this Dracula monster, this vampire. He brings back Nosferatu. He does this genitalia symbolism that you mentioned. He gives you the Predator's mouth face from the Predator movie. He gives you aliens. Like in the Aliens movie, there's all these fights in the sewers and monsters coming up from underwater and a commando of ninja vampires, which is the US space marines of James Cameron's aliens, fighting and getting swamped and overrun. That's where he got that. He just steals from everybody and puts stuff together. And he did it fairly well because he got that. This is the peculiar shock. This is the horror question that you see in Alien. The alien monster will not only kill you, but reproduce itself through you. You need to kill life to give life, to survive. That is the monstrosity of horror. That is the monstrosity that you're supposed to face. And he at least delivers on that, although he's not quite thoughtful. The story, however, did have a way of working that was for a reason I cannot explain sabotaged. Blade 2 is actually two stories superimposed in an ingenious way. We've already talked about the political story. You could say like with David Brooks, we're all bobos now. We're bourgeois people living in paradise with bohemian hipster tendencies and opportunities and distractions, but we're still mortally afraid of death. We still obsess over all the things that might keep death and pain away, and we want to ignore and hide from all the ugly things, so that in Blade 2 it's always underground in the sewers that evil dwells. We have evacuated it from the rest of the world, but also that means we cannot get it out of our minds. We're fascinated with this part that we cannot see, the underworld. And this ultimately is a question of biotechnology. Should this be transforming our nature or not? The vampire is just a mannequin. It's a future where you're not male and female, where you're not child or adult or old. You're just a silhouette, a mannequin of a person. And the film shows you in excruciating detail what horror this would actually produce. But there is also a story within it about the relationship between honor, blood, family, and in short, old ancient politics. There is an evil vampire named for an ancient eastern city. His daughter is named for another. They have a honor-bound relationship and the vampire commando is a bunch of outcasts, as you pointed out. You've got a sort of goth chick with tattoos and weird colored hair and her tattoo boyfriend and the biker. And you've got the Eastern Asian ninja Don Yen, the great martial artist who also did choreography for the movie. That's why it looks so good. He's a great Hong Kong actor. 
oh, and the Middle Eastern man, and uh, all these outcasts are supposed to be bound together by a code of honor, and they are supposed to explore the consequences of believing in that honor as they are destroyed, because the truth about honor in the ancient world turns out to be the evil exploitation of upper-class types. If you're a samurai, you're willing to die for honor and out of shame, but you have a corrupt master who uses you like a weapon. And that was supposed to be the story of Blade to the self-destruction of ancient politics, rehearsed at the precise moment when modern politics is turning to take us back there. The suggestion of the story is that if we're not careful with the power we've unleashed, we're going back to what you could call neo-feudalism. We have, in this movie, a high-tech fortress. You would have all the powers of new technology to separate yourself from the rest of mankind in the way in which a castle allowed the feudal lord to separate himself from everybody else and therefore to have no community or equality with anybody else. And of course, if you think about the powers of transnational corporations in tech valued at half a trillion dollars, is that democracy and free enterprise or is it more neo-feudalism with a new system of aristocracy of CEOs and upper management and founders who are really more like kings and princes than citizens and who treat the rest of us not exactly like citizens and maybe more like subjects that's the story that was supposed to happen but somehow the direction got in the way and you just see all these elements they're never put together however it's yeah i think strange. also that del toro is really obsessed with how our anxieties about our bodies actually determine our world and there's nothing wrong with that it's a perfectly legitimate form of storytelling but it's a different kind of story and it's almost a different genre because you have a movie that's simultaneously an action movie where it feels like you have a bunch of 13 year old boys spitballing about what kind of scenes they would like to see in a movie yeah and you got blade and he's fighting a super vampire and you got Donnie Yen and, but he's a vampire Donnie Yen and the thing is when you have these really muscle dudes and they're hitting this vampire with this giant hammer but since it's a super vampire that looks like a regular vampire it doesn't really hurt it and so you have that one element and on the other hand you have a body horror movie of how do we respond to our own mortality and what are we willing to do to evade our mortality and what will it cost us even if we succeed between Blade and Blade 2 there's actually three different movies there even though the first Blade movie falls apart at the end because they literally ran out of money and there's certain scenes where they just ran out of film and they just said, okay, just put it up there even though it doesn't make sense. Whereas Blade 2 is actually two different kinds of movies that are both different from the first one. They don't build on it and they're not perfectly connected with each other. Well, it makes for an enjoyable movie, I think, but after I saw Blade 2, I never particularly wanted to see it again. Whereas if I have free time, even though I've seen the first Blade movie five, six times, I'd be glad to see Blade again. It's not so much that the class conflict story itself is so great. It's so that the first two acts are so wonderfully narratively coherent. That everything that happens is in service to a story. That it's extremely enjoyable in a way that Blade 2, there's a constant feeling of disjunction where you're watching one kind of movie, then you're watching another kind of movie. You're right that a lot of it just looks like what you'd think Quentin Tarantino would do. And the other part looks like, okay, some writer actually had something to say here. The director and the writer wanted different movies and both got them, <laughs> which is not supposed to happen. I do wonder if there were some commercial... Once again, I think that Goyer and Del Toro probably on some level agreed on creating a body horror movie about mortality. But at the same time, there was a commercial imperative about, okay, how do we dramatize it? And in the first Blade movie, I think the fights are, do a pretty good job of dramatizing the class conflicts that are inherent within the movie. Whereas in the second movie, it's actually different genres. 
if it was going to be narratively coherent, instead of having these martial arts fight scenes, which are fine, you would direct it as more of an action horror movie. It wouldn't things would probably, if it had been a more horror movie, probably wouldn't have been as successful. When people look back on the movie, they're going to talk about, wow, wasn't it great when they were, the vampires were flipping and they're doing this martial arts fighting? And they're not as going to remember this old vampire selling out his children in the hopes of achieving immortality. And they're probably not going to talk about the vampires with their ridiculous mouth. I think it's visually powerful. But I don't really think they want to talk about, hey, do you remember when that genitalia was both like a vagina and a penis? That was great. They're not going to say that. I remember people talking about Dark City. If they were in their late teens, early 20s, the same description constantly came up. They would say that was stupid. Now, Dark City is a lot of things, but what it isn't is stupid. When they were saying it's stupid, what they were saying is it bothered me and I don't know why. And the thing is, they couldn't say it scared me. It made me think about what I am. It really shook me. What they would say was, I didn't understand it. It had nothing to say. I'm actually emotionally invulnerable. I'm not crying now. I do think on one level, David Goyer was trying to avoid people walking out of the movie with that feeling that they got from Dark City. I wasn't as entertained as I was, and now I just feel sad and weird. The action scenes, even if they don't belong in the same movie on some tonal level, it gives people something to talk about. They don't want to talk about the weird, sad stuff. Exactly. You can still say it was a Blade movie. Wasn't that so cool? Wesley Snipes is the greatest. You don't have to display emotional vulnerability to your friends and say, oh my God. Because then the scenes of Dark City where they're changing the house, but they're also changing the economic class and the attitudes of the people. It's like, wow, that really, that made me wonder. I mean, to what extent am I the product of these largely arbitrary forces that I can't control? People don't want to go out of a movie talking about that kind of stuff. They don't want to display that kind of emotional vulnerability, even to their friends usually. So talking about a sword fight is, on some level, much more comfortable. Yes, that's part of the limits of the format. So long as we're stuck with an action comedy or a cool fight, or now look at Marvel. Marvel has actually reinvented the musical comedy. But for the computer games generation, if you look at Guardians of the Galaxy, even Deadpool, but also especially the newer one, Thor Ragnarok. Ragnarok is the ugliest story there ever was because it's Armageddon with no salvation. All the gods and heroes die, everything is terrible, there's no redemption. And now they've turned it into a woke comedy because you've got a cool 70s soundtrack, that's what Guardians of the Galaxy pioneered, and you've got all these action scenes that are taken straight out of computer game graphics. Audiences love this stuff, but it also means that you can't say or do anything. The thing with Dark City is there's nothing really to be done, actually. That's one of the things people find really disturbing about it. You can actually look at Blade and go, oh, you know what, maybe a more egalitarian politics would be good. With Dark City, it's, oh my god, it's more inherently introspective and existentialist. Yes. Am I, the question is, am I real? And there's nothing you can really do to make yourself real or not real. It's more questioning to what extent you really are a reflection of social structures as much as a house. It's because it's not comedy. If you want to see Dark City done comically, that satisfies people and everybody's cool with it, it's called Fight Club. That's the comedy for that dark, angry, anxious mood. But that leaves people satisfied because it was so cool. Fincher got an entire Guy Ritchie, Quentin Tarantino aspect to that movie so that people could live with what otherwise would be exactly. You're not your social class, you're not your material possessions, and you're not even you. Yeah. Of course, at least people who see Dark City and are moved by it know what they're dealing with. Whereas people who see Fight Club and loved it and it's a super successful movie have no idea why do you get a sense that it's a comedy and what is it really about. It's too well concealed. And that seems to be part of the price you pay for success. 
And also, I think whenever you have movies with those kinds of messages implicit, the appreciation for them grows over time, especially for some parts of the audience, they're more comfortable embracing superficial elements. At least outwardly, you see that with Fight Club, you see that with Boys in the Hood. It's a movie about the importance of fatherhood. Well, the people who came out of Boys in the Hood, if you're 17 or 18 years old, what's the first kid you're talking about? You're talking about Doughboy. You're talking about Ice Cube, because that's a lot more comfortable. It feels less emotionally vulnerable to embrace that character than to embrace Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character because you don't want to admit weaknesses. But over time, I think that those movies do actually work on people. The first time they feel it, especially when you're relatively younger, when they're talking about it, they don't want to admit in all the ways that they were moved because that feels weak. Yes. Thanks for joining me, Pete. This has been a great conversation. We haven't done so much class analysis of stories before, but there's a great opportunity with this. And uh, let's talk again. Excellent. Thank you very much. Glad to be on. Bye-bye. Bye.